Hey, Pastor Zach here from the Grove Church, and I'm just excited that you are either streaming or have downloaded a sermon right here from TGC. Um, we're excited that you're here and just excited for you. I pray that it blesses you. But before we do get started, I just one thing I want to chat with you about. One thing I just want to really just plead with you that this would not replace you joining in with God's covenant people um, through the local church. I pray that this would be only supplemental to your growth in Christ and would in no way replace you joining regularly with God's people, sitting under your pastor and serving your brother and sister in Christ. And so if you're local to TGC, I just want to extend the invitation for you to come and join us. We're here every Sunday, 10 a.m., downtown Spruce Pine, right on Lower Street. We would absolutely love to have you. If you're not local, then I just ask and pray that you would find a local body of believers who love Jesus, preach the Bible, and is a place that you can both serve in and find community with. After all, this is God's plan to push back what's dark in the world. The local church is to be a light, and we pray that you would find that. I hope that this sermon blesses you. May God bless you as you listen to the proclamation of his word. So um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Esther. We'll be in chapter 8 today. Um, and we're going to go through the entire chapter 8. We have about, after today, we'll have two more weeks in Esther. Um, and then we're going to go into uh, a sermon series called Family Traits. Uh, and it's going to be a, a short topical series uh, about what it looks like to be a family member of the Grove Church. What, what, what do we care about? Why are we here and not just joining other churches around us? Like, what's unique about us? What's unique about being a part? Because when you're, when you're part of a family, like Eliam, he looks a certain way, my son, and we had a second son named Valor, and he looks just like Eliam. So family, they have certain characteristics and certain things that they look like each other. And so what does it look like at the Grove to be part of the family of the Grove? What do we care about? What are we, what are we, what are we talking about um, most? And so we'll go through a sermon series about that, and then we'll be in Colossians uh, going verse by verse again through Colossians. And so, uh, but we'll, we'll finish Esther chapter 8 today. We'll read it and then go through it. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be up here as well, uh, just to make sure that we're all talking about the same thing and I'm not making any stuff up. So Esther chapter 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her, and the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai above the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in the sight, and if the things seem right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters that devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews and who are in the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write, as you please, with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, 
on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors of the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from royal stud saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And that is the word of the Lord this morning. So as we, as we read that, there's a lot going on. And I just want to shortly, briefly catch people up in what's happening. And so there's this, there's this big king, this evil king, we can call him an evil king, King Ahasuerus. And you see that in, in, in the text here, King Ahasuerus. His, um, Greek, that's his, per, that's his uh, Persian name. His Greek name is King Xerxes. And so King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, he's sitting on a throne. And, he, and this, is what king, this is how he makes decisions. He always makes his decisions drunk. He's always just drunk on his throne, making decisions. He's always drinking. And um, what happens is this guy comes up to him and, and, and or this guy in his, in his kingdom raises up to power. His name's Haman. He raises up to power, becomes like basically second in command of the biggest kingdom, the biggest empire that's ever been on this earth up until this point. And what that man does is he gets honor and glory. That's what he's always wanted was honor and glory across everyone. So as he goes out, everyone's bowing down to him, showing him respect and honor. Except for this one guy named Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow down to him. And so what he does is he just refuses, and people ask him, why won't you bow down? And he says, because I'm a Jew, I will not bow down to him. See, the Jews in Haman, Haman's part of a people called the Agagites. It's not, it's not fun to say. It sounds like your mouth is full of gravel when you say Agagites. Like, it's just too many Gs. Um, and so it's Agagites, Agagites, Agagites. Maybe that's how it's supposed to be pronounced. See, the key to pronouncing names in the Bible is being fast and confident. No one knows how to pronounce them. If you're fast and confident, everyone thinks you know how to pronounce them, and so you don't have to worry about it. So Haman... They're enemies. They've been enemies since Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, the Agites uh, raise, up to, uh, raise up to destroy the Jews. Um, and so they've been enemies in, in, since the very, like, very early on in the kingdom or the people of Israel. And so um, he, he decides, because uh, Mordecai is a Jew and won't show him honor, won't show him respect, he decides to just talk the king into killing all the Jews. And so he goes to the king and says, I have this idea. Let's kill these people. They're called the Jews. We'll take all their money, and we'll put it in the king's treasury, um, and, and you can have it, and, and so it'll make you a really rich man. And, and, and King Xerxes, or Hazarus, says, sounds good to me. Here's my ring. Go ahead and make the order. Send it out. So they sent it out, and there was great confusion. 
uh, mourning in, in the kingdom, specifically in the, in the citadel uh, or the area of Susa, the capital near the citadel. Um, but all before that, God's providence was already at work. And so the king had divorced his wife in the very beginning of the story. And he, and he got sad. He missed his wife. He wanted a new wife. And so he got this idea for some young, uh, wise men of his to throw the bachelor Persia and just have all the women get dressed up and dolled up and for a whole year just pour oils and makeup and all this stuff. And so they take Esther and, and Esther goes in and participates in this. Uh, Esther goes and spends the night with the king and, and the king says, this is going to be my new wife. And so Esther, a Jew, Mordecai's adoptive daughter. They're actually cousins, but we know Esther lost her parents somehow. Now she's the queen of the largest empire this world has ever known. And Haman has decided, and the king has agreed to, kill all the Jews. But the thing is, is, is Esther hasn't told anyone that she's a Jew. Her adoptive father, Mordecai, said, don't tell anyone you're a Jew. Keep that to yourself. And so she has. Until recently, she decided to risk her life to go before the king and to tell him the truth. And over a series of events, she ends up telling her the truth, telling him the truth that someone seeks to harm her and to kill her and to kill all of her, her family. And the king rises up in anger and says, who is this man? Who would dare touch the queen, the queen, the king's wife? And it was Haman. Haman was sitting there all at the same dinner. So Haman gets killed. He is destroyed. He is hung on a gallows. Um, gallows back then was more like a big spike that they were hung on, a big piece of wood that they were hung on, very similar to crucifixion. In fact, it's the precursor to crucifixion. So Haman was killed. He was killed on the very spike or gallows that, that Mordecai was to be killed on. That's where uh, Haman was going to kill Mordecai. And so this is where we pick up the story, is that Haman, the guy who started this plan to kill all the Jews, was just killed. And now the queen throws herself before the feet of the king and says, I still need help. I st- we st- am I supposed to watch the destruction of my kindred? Am I supposed to watch my family be destroyed? And so what happens is Esther and Mordecai rise to these, these very powerful spots in the, in the kingdom of, of Persia. The very, they become very powerful. She's already the queen, but now, now she's out in the open. She's not hiding anything anymore. Uh, and the king apparently didn't leave her. In fact, the king is apparently pleased with her because the king gave her all of Haman's stuff. This, the, the, gave her his land, his house, everything. And so he's apparently not mad. There, there was a real chance he could have been mad. Could you imagine being married for five years and your wife's like, hey, I'm Asian. And you're like, what? I had no idea. That's what happened. And there's a real chance that King Xerxes could have been upset and frustrated. You lied to me. You worship a different God than I do and you never told me. You, you, you need, you're supposed to celebrate these feasts and eat a certain way and you never told me you were supposed to do those things. He could be very upset. So there was a real fear of, that there could have been an Esther of, will he leave me like he left his first wife, or his other wife? But he doesn't. He gives her the house. And so you read in verse 1, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to the queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther told him what, finally told him, hey, Mordecai, the guy who, you know, this guy, he's my adoptive daughter. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So Man, so now you have these two people just in this incredible amount of powder, power. And they were, we can read as we th- through this that they were good leaders, actually. And, and so I want to talk a little bit about what makes Esther and Mordecai good leaders. Um, the, well, one of the things that made them good leaders is that they, they, they actually walked in the authority that God was trying to give them. They, 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 God gave them this house, this people, 
um, or this house and this, this land, this power, this authority to be really second in command. He's, he's got the king's signet ring. He's second in command now of the entire, he was about to be killed the day earlier, and now he's second in command of the entire empire of Persia. And they step into that role. They do it willingly, but I think they also do it humbly. They, they, you can see Esther as, she, as she's in this new role of hers and, and Mordecai's in this new role is that the, she still talks with an incredible amount of respect to a king who's not a very respectful king. They don't have a great marriage. We read earlier that they would, go some, they would live in the same house. They would go sometimes up to 30 days never seeing each other. So it's not a great marriage, but she's super respectful. If it pleased the king, if I have found favor in his sight, if the things, if the things seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let my people, my family not be murdered. That's what she's asking for, right? And so she's respectful, but she steps into that authority with humility. And I think some of us, we, we are resistant to, to use the authority or the influence that God has given us for the good of other people, for, for, any, for any good at all. Because we think we, we have these, uh, I'm not good enough, I, man, I, I, don't, I don't think I could do this. I don't think I could be a leader. I don't think I could step into that role of authority. And here's the cool thing that I love about the story of Esther. As we go through the story of Esther, I know I've been harsh on Esther. I've been harsh on Mordecai. I, I 100% believe it's in the text that they weren't that great of, of, of people in the beginning. But they're growing, and they step into this role. And, that, and why that's so important is because that's hopeful for you and me. Because we can't really relate to Daniel all that much, right? Because Daniel's this strong guy who says, I'm not going to worship anyone but God. And he, and, he, and he says no to a bad law. And Esther didn't, we don't have any record of Esther saying, no, I will not marry a pagan king. She does anyway. She could have said no. Could she have been killed? Sure. They tried to kill Daniel. Couldn't have God protected her if he wanted to. That was his providence to this is the way that he's going to save his people. And there's no other way he could do it. He's going to do it through Esther. God could have orchestrated it even with her willing to die. But she doesn't. She goes along with it. She eats foods she shouldn't eat. She doesn't celebrate feasts. I mean, for five years, her husband doesn't know she's a Jew. She's not observing the laws that she should observe. And she's not that great. But here's the incredible thing, is we can relate to Esther. We don't often follow God like we should. But when God gives us that influence or that authority, we can step into it. In fact, even when we feel like, you know what, I, I can't do this, I can't be a leader, man, it's oftentimes people with that kind of humility who think they can't do it that make the best leaders. Moses made a lot of mistakes, but he didn't want to go where God had sent him. He felt he wasn't qualified. He had a speech impediment. I can't be the voice of God. And God used him mightily to save his people out of Egypt and to bring them close to the promised land. Uh, not quite into it. Other people had to do that because of his sin and his dis unbelief. But God uses Esther and he can use you. And so some of us have this position. Uh, maybe it's not a position of authority. Like, you know, maybe you're not a politician or you're not a leader at work, but you have influence over other people's lives, even if you don't think you do. If you're a mom or you're a dad, you have an immense amount of influence over someone's life. If you're a husband, you have an immense amount of influence over people's life. If you're a wife, if you're even a student, you have friends at school. Like, we all have influence over people, and we need to step in to recognize that influence and step into it with humility like Esther and Mordecai. And they, were good, they, they became good leaders because they did that. They were humble and they were willing. And so she re respectfully talks to the king. If, if it pleased the king and if I have found favor in his sight and if the thing seems right before the king. 
and if I am pleasing in his eyes. And so I've talked about this a few times about us respecting even authority that doesn't deserve respect. Um, and, and, and I talked about it in regards to, to all, all spheres of influence, whether you are um, at a job and your, your boss isn't a really respectful person, but you should still respect them, even though they're not a person of honor. Um, and I've also talked about how wives should respect their husbands. And, I, and some people don't like that. Like it's like nails on a chalkboard, or like getting a cat wet. They're just like, I don't like that verse. I don't like that. But here's what I want to tell you about wives respecting their husbands. For some reason, God has ordained that wives would have an immense amount of influence over their husbands. Like a ridiculous amount of influence. And if you're a husband here today, you know that your wife can say just one thing and it could just make your day incredible and you feel great. Or she can say one thing and it could ruin your week. It could just, it could just devastate you. Wives have an immense amount of influence and power in their marriage. God has ordained it that way. And that's why there's this constant call of women respecting your husbands is because you have this power and you can wield it to bring life to your marriage or you can wield it to bring destruction to your marriage because you have that influence over your husband. And so whether, whether it is at a, at, a, at a workplace or it's with your kids um, or it's with your peers or it's with your spouse, show respect even when it's not deserving. Because your words have power. Because in James, says your words can bring life or your words can bring hell is the word James chooses to use. And so our tongues can start the fires of hell. And so we need to be careful with our words. And Esther does an incredible job of being careful with her, wor- his or her words and being respectful to a man who doesn't der- deserve respect. And so what happens next gets a little, starts to split people on the book of Esther. So what happens next is there's this law that the enemies of the Jews, the people of Persia, can kill the Jews. They can kill them. On a certain day, what they did is they rolled these dice, and they, they picked a day based on this dice. It was this weird witchcraft, sorcery, divination kind of thing, like, hey, let's use the dice and the spirits to determine when we're going to kill God's people. And they pick a day based on the dice. And the problem with the laws in this, in this uh, culture is this is a culture of unrepentance. There's no repentance in this culture. And so what happens is there's this thing called the laws, laws of the Medes and the Persians. And when, a, when the king makes a law, he can't revoke it. It's, it's, it's just you can't do it. Now, I would, I would preface that with you could, but it would cause uproar and cause civil war possibly. It, would be, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be clean. It would be messy. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Oftentimes, the things God calls us to do, repentance can get messy. Like if you're going to be honest with your spouse about a sin that's in your life that you've been keeping secret, that could turn messy, but it doesn't mean it's not worth it. And so here, Xerxes has an opportunity to repent and say, I was lazy and I was drunk and I passed this stupid law I should have never passed. I know it's, not, it's, not, it's against the law for me to revoke it, but I'm going to do it anyway because I was wrong. But he doesn't do that. What he does is say, make another law. Just make another law. So what they do is they make a law, another law that can't be revoked. And what that law is, it's a law that allows the Jews to defend themselves and to kill anyone who's trying to kill them. It's a law of self-defense. Because previous to this, it wouldn't have been right for them to defend themselves. Because the law was they were allowed to be killed. And so if they tried to defend themselves, let's say they even won. They like killed all the people trying to kill them. They would be arrested and put to death for breaking the law. But here we are, the law that was passed was if anyone comes to you armed, trying to kill you, you can defend yourself. 
But then you get to this part of even women and children. And people have a hard time with that. And, and as we get into this and talk about this, it's, it's important to know that death is always sad. Whether it's a justifiable self-defense, it's still sad. And we, we end up in a, in a place in our culture where we, say da- we see death on the news all the time. And sometimes what it's easy to do, like, let's just, let's use this for an example. I'm going to get in trouble here, but that's okay. Let's use this for an example. Let's say a cop kills someone. And we oftentimes, we, it divides the nations, the nation, right? And so it's like, hey, you know what? Cops have a hard job. They, they make tough decisions. And, like, that guy should have put his hands up. And if he would have put his hands up, this wouldn't have happened. The other people are saying, like, you know, no, cops are, cops are brutal. They're, they're enemies. They, they try and hurt us. They try and kill us. So it divides the nation. I think what sometimes both sides miss things. And so what one side misses is that, yeah, even though maybe this death was justified, it was still someone's son. It was still someone's dad, someone's brother, someone's sister, someone's daughter. And it's sad that the cop ever had to do this to begin with. And that's not just cops. We Self-defense, you defend your home. And you have a right in this state to do that. And if you have to kill someone to do that, could it be justified? Maybe. Probably. But does it change the fact that it's a horrible thing that had to happen? It doesn't. And so when we get into this, we think about women and children, and we think, that's not right. They shouldn't have done that. They shouldn't kill women and children. Well, he, here's, here's the reality. All they went in and did is make a law that's the opposite of the law that was already in there. The law said women and children were allowed to kill Jews. That women and children could arm themselves and go kill God's people. And so the law that Mordecai made was even if a woman and child is armed and trying to come kill you, you can defend yourself against them as well. Is it good? No. Was it necessary? Probably. To save God's people. To save the people that Jesus would ultimately come from. Yeah, it was probably necessary. And this is how God saved his people. But it it is worth noting that when we get into chapter 9... And beyond, we're going to see that when they, when they list the people who died because of this, they don't actually list any women and children. So it is possible no women and children had to die. I don't know. We don't know. We do know a lot of men died. And we'll read that next week. But what we, what we do know is that God's people had the legal right on this one day so far to defend themselves. And I think that's okay. I think that's justified in this case. And that may be hard for some of us to understand. It may be, some of us may be too excited that we have the right to defend ourselves. But I think there's a, a place in the middle, like there often is, where yes, you can defend yourself, but it doesn't make it great. It doesn't make it happy. It doesn't make this just joyful defense. That when a soldier goes to war and people are shooting at them, they have the right to defend themselves, to defend their country, defend the people of that village or that province. But it doesn't mean we should take excitement and joy in that at all. And so on this day, the Jews have much to rejoice about. They rejoice. Um, they are happy. There's light, joy, gladness, and honor. But we have to remember there was also, maybe not with the Jews, but also in this, in this country, there was a lot of mourning. And like oftentimes in real life, when there's rejoicing and gladness, there's mourning. And so when we think about the cross, the cross was a, really a place of great rejoicing and gladness as Christians, right? We look at the cross and we're glad, we're excited, that we're glad that Jesus chose to die for us. But there's also should be great mourning that it's because of our sins Jesus had to go to the cross. And so we can't always separate joy and rejoicing from mourning. But oftentimes the things go together. And it's in this case, I believe the things go together. But I do believe 
that they were justified in defending themselves. It's really clear. If we read it slowly, many were, they annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them. This wasn't go out and kill your, all your enemies. No, they had to be armed and coming to attack the Jews. It was very specific and very clear on how and who it could happen to. And so we have to be careful as we read the Bible. And so, man, this is tough. This is tough stuff. And you may be a new Christian or, or, or learning about Christianity. You're like, I don't know. I know Jesus loves me and Jesus loves the world. And I, the Old Testament just confuses me sometimes because there's people dying and God's saying to kill certain people or allowing certain people to be killed. And I, I know it's tough. I know it's hard. When we arrive at sections like this, we have to just read it and we have to trust God. Then we, we come to things that we might not agree with, we have to trust God. There's hard things God's going to call you to do, things you might not want to do. And you just have to decide, am I the final authority or is God's word the final authority? And at the Grove, we believe that God's word is the final authority. And so we come to things, man, like there, there's a part of this church where we have to confront people in their sin. We always say it's a place where it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. And so, man, I have to have tough conversations. Some of you guys have to have tough conversations with your brothers and sisters. And it's not fun to do. I don't enjoy those conversations at all. In fact, those conversations are, are always uh, heartbreaking. They, they, they wake me up at night that I know I have to have them. Like, it's not a fun thing. And if, I, and if I didn't have to do it, if it wasn't in Scripture, I would love not to have to do it. But I come to Scripture, and you get to a place like Matthew 18, and it's like, hey, when your brother sins against you, go and confront them. And if, and if they don't listen, then you take two or three witnesses, so you go in front of them. They don't listen, then take it to the church, and they still don't listen, they still don't repent, then to treat them like an unbeliever. But I don't like that. I'm just being honest with you. That's not fun for me. Now, I do like aspects of it that we're tasked with defending the name of Christ. I, I, I appreciate that, but I, it's not a fun process. It's a long process. We don't just rush through that, but it's a long process sad, oftentimes with, filled with tears and heartbreak, but we have to submit ourselves to the word of God. So we get to things like this where God chooses to use Esther and Mordecai to save his people through armed killing and self-defense. Is that great? Is it fantastic? Is it joyful? No. Is it joyful that the, that the Jews were saved? Absolutely. That, that a people group who were about to be killed got saved? Yes. But it should also be met with the real idea that people died. People who, but for the grace of God, they would have been. The Jews weren't picked because they were awesome. The Jews weren't picked to be God's people because they were that great. In fact, they weren't that great. In fact, there's really a good case to be made. The reason why Abraham was picked because he wasn't that great of a God. And God would get more glory using a guy like that than to use the best guy on earth. And, and so the Jews had nothing to boast about. But God saved them from annihilation through a specific way, in a specific time, on a specific day. So we come to it and just submit to it and say, God, this is how you chose to do it. This is how you chose to allow it to happen. And so we submit to that. I believe it was justified. I think there's arguments to be made on both sides, but I believe it was justified. And so as you continue to read, one thing I wanted to mention, I really want to spend the, I know you've, like, you've been here for a while, but I want to spend the bulk of the rest of the time on is how Mordecai and Esther lived like missionaries in this time. I know it can be hard to see, but I want us to see this because it's so important. Uh, I've been using the language of missionary for the two years, or two and a half years this church has been here, um, that we are missionaries in Spruce Pine. We are missionaries in Burnsville. We're missionaries in New England. We're missionaries where God has placed us. And Esther and Mordecai, as you read this entire story, at this point, they're safe. They really are okay. Esther doesn't fall 
at the feet of the king and say, please save my life. She says, no, save my brothers, my kindred, my family, save their life. Like, she's safe where she is. She's the queen. Mordecai safe. No one hates Mordecai, like the person anymore. There are people who hate the Jews generally. But the one guy who hated Mordecai, who wanted to see Mordecai dead, he's gone. His family's gone. They're, they're okay. They're safe. They don't just sit back and use their newfound power and authority and their position to just enjoy it. They continue and to press forward for a greater good and greater and greater and greater good and to save all of God's people, not just themselves. I mean, we can, we can go back even further where Esther was willing to die just at the chance to talk to the king about saving her people. These aren't selfish, selfish people anymore. These are people who are laying down their lives and even maybe they could lose their position because of what they're asking for. They're asking the king to change his law. He won't do it. He says, make a new law. That's what they end up doing. But they are pleading with him, using the position. We have been placed in unique places. Acts 17 says that God has ordained the time and the place in which you live so that those who are far from God wouldn't actually be far from God because you're there. God has ordained the places in which you live. Sometimes a missionary is intentionally sent by God to a land of people who haven't heard about Jesus. And that is absolutely what a missionary is. And in the coming months, we're going to talk about some ways that we can get involved, more involved overseas, because that's something that we should do. I 100% agree, we should be primarily focused in the, our community that surrounds us, but we have resources and things that can help people across the ocean that wouldn't be as effective here, like just diarrhea medicine. You know people in Africa just die of diarrhea? Have you ever had diarrhea before? Don't, don't raise your hand, but like, <laughs> and just thought like, and ever thought like, this could kill me. No, you're just like, this, this is uncomfortable. I could make a mess. But people in other countries, that's a serious illness that could kill them of dehydration. And so, yeah, we're going to be focused in Spruce Pine. We're going to be focused in Mitchell County and Avery County, Yancey County. Man, our heart is to see other churches planted in counties across the West North Carolina. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't be focused across the seas as well. Because a little bit of money, a little bit of time can have a large impact in some of these places. And so we want to be focused. But also, sometimes the way missions is done is through the providence of God, God's people who are already scattered across the nations, using their current place at the current time, their current position, to make much of the glory of God, to make much of the name of God. And so you're, you live on a certain street at a certain time. You work at a certain place, or you stay home with your kids. Whatever you do, you do that, not by chance, not by happenstance, not just because you decide to do it, but by the providence of God so that you might reach the people around you, so you might encourage the people around you, so you might evangelize the people around you, you might disciple the people around you. So Esther and Mordecai, man, they should have been in Jerusalem. Isaiah said, go home. Jerusalem is open for business. Go back, rebuild. And Mordecai didn't go. He should have been in Jerusalem. He's at a place where he shouldn't be, but in the providence of God, God still uses him mightily. And maybe you feel like you're at a place you don't want to be or you shouldn't be. You're at a job maybe you feel like you shouldn't have taken or you live, on a, live in a house or you rent someplace you feel like you shouldn't be or you don't want to be. And maybe you need to take steps to, to get out of that place, but you're there for a reason today. And God will use that and God will honor that just like he did for Esther and Mordecai. So we look at Esther and Mordecai. They're God's people in a pagan place, Persia. They're in a pagan culture. They've concealed their identity as God's people for a long time, but now they've come out of the 
the, the closet of, of, of Judaism and identified themselves with God's people. And one thing I want to make perfectly clear is they're not doing this as clergy or as pastor and, and wife or pastor and daughter. They're doing this as, as regular people, as politicians. See, God's plan to change the culture around us, God's plan to save the world is not me up here preaching the gospel. God's plan is for you, sitting in the seats today, to go out from this building and to, to make much of the name of Christ. That's his plan. In fact, we talk about ministry and people say like, oh, I feel called to the ministry. Man, every Christian here is called to ministry. All of you. And, and Ephesians would say that the pastor's job is to equip you for ministry. J.D. Greer, the, the new president of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, he, he would say this. He's exaggerating, so don't, don't take this literally. But he says, the day I decided to become a pastor was the day I left the ministry. Because it's not his job to go out and evangelize everyone in his town. Because he has a church full of people who are already scattered throughout his town. And they can do the work of ministry. But it's his job to equip them, to prepare them, and to help them along the way. And so God's plan for our community is not just to invite people here to come here. And I'm glad people invite people here. I'm glad people come. And we made invite cards to make it easy. But that's not God's primary plan. His plan is to go out. You guys have people you work with. You guys have neighbors. We, 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 this, is, this is just me saying what we do. This isn't like, you should go do this. But, but we, we, uh, my wife's been wanting a fire pit for a long time. Yesterday, I built a fire pit. She didn't like it, so she rebuilt it. Um, it's a true story. It's kind of still a little tender. But we, uh, we have this fire pit now. Is it perfect? No. But it's, it, it, it burns wood. And so, we, we, so, so last, uh, last night, we had it for the first night, and we made a fire. And, and like just all the neighbor's kids came over. We had three different families, maybe at one point, four different families of kids just at our house. We just had s'mores. Um, we had, uh, you know, I guess s'mores. I was going to go s'mores and chocolate and graham crackers, but that's not right. Marshmallows, chocolate, and graham crackers to make s'mores. That's how you make them. Uh, and so we were, I was teaching the kids how to make s'mores and how to, you know, how to do that. And so it was fun. They got, they got, they got chocolate all over my favorite chair, but it was cool. It was good. We were talking about it, talking about church and talking about things and just just living life with these children. And these are, some of them are aliens, some of them are older, and we're just talking, and, and man, it was awesome. And it was great. And, that, and, that, and, and we're on that street on Summit Avenue for a reason to reach the families on Summit Avenue. And so we're going to open up our home, and we're going to have people over, and we're going to have kids over. And man, every day we have kids, like especially right now, some are just kids I don't know running through our house. And I love it. And maybe there's some rooms we should lock. We have some stuff. I don't know, but it's, I just love it. I don't care. These kids are running through our house, and Elium's, Elium's talking to him about Jesus. And we have the opportunity to talk to him about Jesus. And it's an incredible opportunity because we live at a certain time, on a certain place, on a certain street, and we're home. My wife's at home, and I'm at home a lot. And so we are able to just minister to these kids and, and eventually their families. And, and man, it's just awesome. And so that's my prayer, is that you guys would just open up your lives. Hospitality is how God has ordained the entire world to change. It's through just ordinary hospitality, you opening up your life to strangers. Fellowship is you opening up your life to people who believe the same thing as you. Hospitality is you opening up your life to people who don't believe the same things as you. So we open up our life in hospitality. We open up our houses. And we have families here who do that. There's, I just met this recent family who just decided to have an Airbnb in their house. And they talked to people about Jesus. It's just awesome. That's hospitality. That's, and, 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 it's, and, and in a cool way, they are able to make some money while they're being hospi hospi hospitable. Is that how you say that? I feel like that's right. Someone who went to college, help me. <laughs> Hospitable. Um, 
And so they do that. And so God's put you at a specific place, but also your workplace. Um, there, there's a man I recently met. His name is David. He's sitting right up here. I'm going to embarrass him for a second. Um, and I just love this guy. Uh, and so this guy, he, he was an associate pastor at a Calvary Chapel, and I come from a Calvary Chapel church. Uh, when I was saved in a Calvary Chapel church. He's associate pastor at Calvary Chapel up in New York and moves to, to Burnsville for, for God knows why and um, becomes the custodian at, at Mount Heritage. And that's not the sexiest job in the world, <laughs> if we're being honest. Is that okay to say? I feel like that's fair. And so he's telling me these stories. And I just want to share a couple things that I found horrific. Um, kids think it's cool to put trash cans on top of toilets and to pee in the trash can. That's not cool at all, right? That's disgusting. But someone has to clean that up, and Dave, David cleans that up. And he, he, here's a, tri- a new trick, apparently. Uh, you get a bunch of people to pee in a toilet so it gets super dark, and then you shove uh, stuff into the toilet to clog it up so people flush, it overflows. It's disgusting. It's horrible. And so what happens? David has to go reach in there with gloves, calm down, <laughs> and, and get out the soda bottle that was shoved into the toilet. In our world, in our culture, David has every right to be upset and angry with these children, right? And by, when I say children, I mean like young adults. They're in high school. But they're acting like children. Every right to be upset, to be frustrated. But what does he do? He invites kids over for Bible study. He hangs out with them. So someone, one kid has to go to court. I mean, he shows up at court with the kid. He's using his position that God has given him as unsexy as it might be for the glory of God. Some of us feel like, you know what, I don't really think I can make much of God's name where I work or being, you know, staying at home or building my own business or wherever I am. You can. I don't care what you do. God wants to use where you are today to reach people for his name and to change lives. God's plan to, to change the world is through you, ordinary people, making disciples of other ordinary people, and the reason why I use the word ordinary because it's not, it, this is what ordinary Christianity should look like. This isn't like super Christian, this isn't varsity Christianity making disciples. This is what Jesus said to do. This is what every Christian should be doing, is making disciples who make disciples. It should be ordinary in the church, but it's become like this varsity level thing. Look, Peter and the boys, they didn't even know what they were talking about when they went out and made disciples. Peter went out and made disciples before he even confessed Jesus as Lord. I'm not saying you should do that, but he did it. Peter would continue to get, continue to get in trouble throughout the New Testament. Even to a point where he was almost excommunicated and had to come back because he was, he was, he was, sending, he, he was, he was showing preference to, to the rich people and to the Jews. And Paul was really upset about it. But he comes back and he writes a couple books of the New Testament. And he's humble. He, he, he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Or he's one of the leaders. And so, all this to say, wherever you are, whatever is going on, God wants to use you to save and to change many people. The last verse says, And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of Jews had fallen on them. How many people? Many people. Did some of them just do it out of fear of dying? Sure. Some did it out of a holy fear. Some of, them, some of them, let's say many of them, started to worship the God who saved his people. How many people does God want to change in Mitchell County, Anzi County, and Avery County? Many people. How many churches does God want to plant? Many churches. How many, commu- how many home groups does God want here? Many home groups. Like this is, this is God's whole desire, his whole plan to change everything, and you get to be a part of it. 
Like Christianity shouldn't be bored. No Christian should be living their life bored, not sure what to do. You know exactly what to do. You think you're not able to. You think you're not knowledgeable, knowledgeable enough. You are. And your thought process in that actually makes you perfect for it. Because you have the humility that Mordecai and Esther had. This is how God wants to change the world. And, and the reason why this, this is it. I think sometimes we can get focused on political things, okay? So we're in an election year. I'm not about to get political, but I'm going to say laws don't work. And I'm not saying we shouldn't go out and vote. We should. We should absolutely be a part of the democracy that God has placed us in. I think, I think that 100%. But changing the laws are, isn't going to fix our country or our area. You know how I know that? Do you know what the first five books of the Bible primarily are? Laws. Did that help Israel at all? No. They had the most perfect laws ever in the history of the world, and they still rebelled, and they still worshiped other gods, and they still did things God told them not to do. Laws are not going to fix our problem. The whole point of the law was to show us we can't do it. And because we can't do it, we need Jesus. And Jesus was the greater missionary. Jesus left his home and came to earth. And he grew up here. And he was a missionary in both sense of the word missionary. He left his place and came to a new place. But in that place, he grew up and he was a missionary in his own culture. Jesus is the greater missionary. That's his plan. And so we look to him. We can look to Esther and Mordecai, but primarily we can look look to Jesus, and, and I want to just say, you guys can do this. Like, you can. You may not feel prepared, but you can do it, and we want to help. So we have this thing like the Saturday seminar, where we want to teach you how, what it looks like to change your culture, what it looks like to help change this place for the better. Is it going to be a sacrifice? Yes. But if you're going to take this seriously, and you're able to, I mean, just do it. Use your vocation. Use where you work. Use your street. Use your neighbors. Jesus is the better missionary. People could not save themselves, so Mordecai acted as their earthly savior, but people cannot save themselves today, and Jesus is their eternal savior. Mordecai was sentenced to death, but he rose up in power to save the people. Jesus actually died, but he also rose up and saved his people. But not just his people, he, he, was, he rose up to save his enemies. He's a better missionary. We can go on and on. There's tons of little things like like, uh, it's just incredible. So, so Mordecai wrote this law that was to save his people. He wrote it in many languages that got sent everywhere. Jesus has, a, has, has, some, has some things that were written about him that were translated into many languages, thousands of languages. His perfect scripture he sent in this world and is sent out everywhere. Mordecai allowed God's enemies to be killed for their sin, but Jesus came and took the place of his enemies. Through sin, all people die. But through Jesus, some have their death sentence rescinded. Death came to Persia only to those who did not turn from their sinful ways, only those who continued in their sin. The problem was not racial or national, but it was spiritual. And likewise, Jesus will come back someday. And last week, I'm glad a lot of people came back, because last week was a tough sermon. It was a heavy sermon, but it was needed. And, and, and Jesus is going to come back. And just like this story, Jesus will destroy the unrepentant. He will. And some of us don't like that, and it's heavy, and it was heavy last week. I don't mean just to get back into it, but I'm getting back into it. it was, it's real. Some of us have a problem with, 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 with hell and the idea of hell, and some of us have a problem with that. But if you, if you read in Revelation, 
hell, sometimes we think hell is hell because God's not there. We kind of have this idea like, like Satan is like running hell and that's why it's bad. It's not, that's not why hell's bad. Hell's bad because Jesus is there. We think he's not there, but if we read in Revelation, it's really clear that Jesus is, he's the one ruling over hell, not Satan. And that's the eternal punishment that we talk about. It's the wrath of God. But the great news is that Jesus hung on a cross to absorb the wrath of God for all who would believe and repent. That God doesn't have to look at us with anger, but he can look at us with loving eyes of a son or a daughter. Because Jesus took our place, and Jesus was the greater missionary. So as we close this down, I just want to put before you that, man, it, it, some of you are Christians and in, in, in need to be missionaries where you live. Some of you are doing it, and it's awesome. Some of you may not even be Christians, and you're here today, and like, this was a weird sermon. This was really not for me. But it is, because it's all about a God who decided to become a man to come and save you, to live a life that you could never live, a perfect, sinless life, and to die the death that you should have died. But you don't have to. The call is to come to him to repent and to believe. And what we're going to do this morning is we'll sing some songs together, and we'll, we'll, we'll come to the Lord's Supper as, 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 a, as a family. And so if you're a Christian here today, you're welcome to come to the Lord's, Lord's table and to participate in communion. The reason why we do this every week is because it's centered around the gospel, that the Bible is all about Jesus. It's all about the gospel. And so why not remember that every week? And, and, I, and we can go into the text of Acts, and, it, and they, it looks like they did it every week. And so we just want to follow that footstep and say, every week we want to remember the gospel. Not, just, not every quarter or once a year, but every week we want to remember the gospel, remember what Christ did for us. So we come to the table. So if you're a Christian here today and you want to come and participate in communion, you are free to do so. Come, take the bread, take the wine or the juice, and remember what the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, did for you personally and for us corporately. If you're not a Christian here today, it just wouldn't make sense for you to participate in something you don't believe in. So we don't, we don't want you to feel left out or weird, but just don't, you don't have to come up and do it. In fact, I would ask you not to. That the Lord's Supper is for, is for the people of God. And it's not to say, hey, we get to go to the Lord's Supper and you don't. It's just bread and wine or juice. It's not all that great bread. It's from Ingalls. But we do it to remember Christ. We do it to, as, as a remembrance of what Jesus did for us. And so we'll sing some songs. You can come up and get the elements uh, if, if you want to today and go back to your seats and just remember what Christ did for you on the cross and how he was a greater missionary and, and, and how we are missionaries to, our, to the people around us today. I'll, I'll close uh, this down in prayer and then we'll sing together. <sighs> Father, I just come before you, Lord, uh, just so thankful for your word, God, and the story of Esther, Lord. And I pray, Lord, as we transition the congregational song and, and the Lord's Supper, Lord, that you would just bless this time, God, that you would um, allow us just to remember your sacrifice. And that would lead us to make sacrifices for those around us, Lord. Be willing to live our life in such a way that makes much of you. I pray, Lord, that you'd move in our hearts even now, God, just to to show us where you might have us be missionaries. Maybe some of us are called to go overseas. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen that call. Maybe some of us are called just to, to work at a plant for the rest of our days and make much of Christ there. Lord, that is a glorious call, and I pray that you would remind us of that here this morning. Father, I love you, and I trust you. I pray that you would just be present during this time as we sing and as we remember your, your son's sacrifice. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.